Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, we're finally doing it. We're heading to Derry. If you've listened to any random five-minute segment of this podcast over the last three years, you've probably heard me mention Stephen King's It. My favourite book. My favourite story. I've been promising, or threatening, depending on your perspective, to dig into the sewers and subtext of this massive novel for a while now. And that time has come. However, as everyone knows, you don't go home to Derry alone. You need friends. You need your fellow losers. And I've got some brave souls willing to join me. Nat Cassidy and Ali Malinenko. Nat is a King superfan and the author of Mary, An Awakening of Terror, which is, in its own way, a perimenopausal riff on Carrie. Ali is one of the first class of middle grade authors ever to be nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, deservingly. Her books include Ghost Girl and This Appearing House, and she's the perfect person to talk about how this book treats children, and young girls in particular. They've joined me for what has turned out to be a two-part exploration of King's novel. After all, it's over a thousand pages long, which is tough to cover satisfactorily in one attempt. This time around, we focus on the characters, the notion of childhood, and yes, that infamous scene. We don't even get to Pennywise this time, but have faith, stand, be true. Episode 2 will be along very soon to cover all the weirdness of this epic novel. Quick side note, if you want more Talking Scared, including a good number of deep dives similar to this, you can sign up to be a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or follow the link in the show notes. There are a range of membership levels with different benefits, but it all goes a huge way to supporting me in making this show. So thanks, and come with me to a tired little main town in the summer of 1958. There is much to fear, but there is beauty and bravery and loyalty and love to be found. Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Ali, Nat. Welcome back to Talking Scared. How are you both? I'm good. I'm doing great. <laughs> We're going to talk on top of each other. <laughs> We're both doing great. You're both doing great. That's good. Glad to have you back. This, I think it's both your second time on the show. Mm-hmm. And you've been handpicked, right? And, and thank you for being here because, well, thank you for the work you've already put into this episode before we even start recording. Because I did set you some homework this time, which was the reading of an 1,100-page novel. Did you curse my name? Absolutely not. Not with this novel. If it was a different 1,100-page novel, then yeah. I could never curse your name, Neil. <laughs> never. <laughs> also, like, I reread it probably, this, I think this, this was the sixth time I've read it, and I actually haven't read it uh, in, like, at least a decade. It was due. It was coming around the bend anyway, so this was a perfect opportunity. Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I last read it about six years ago. I did a whole thing where I read every book you ever wrote in order over the course of a year. And that's the last time I read it, which I think would have been about 2016. So I was due as well. And there was a weird amount that I'd forgotten, despite this being my my favourite book. I, I'm not sure if listeners know, this is a book I have a certain fondness for. <laughs> <laughs> you might have mentioned it. You might have mentioned it here or there. 
one of the reasons I'm excited to do this is because I worry that I mention it too much and I feel really weirdly insecure about how much I bring it up. So it's quite nice <laughs> to have a more, kind of an episode to sort of sit down and just talk it through and not be worried about, oh, have I said this before or am I doing it too much? I can really get into it, you know, and th this is almost certainly going to be a, a two-parter because, well, as I said, it's 1,100 pages to kind of do a deep dissection of. I think you are both fans of this book too. You are not. What about yourself, Ali? Um, this is probably within the top three. It rotates between like favorite, second favorite, third favorite, depending on what I've read most recently of okay. this. But yeah, I mean, it's, I love it. It's, I love it. It's, it's a, it's a perfect story about childhood, but we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Where, where would it go in your ranking of Stephen King books, Nat? Uh, oof. I, you know, my it's my go-to generic number one in the same way that like the White Album is my favorite Beatles album just because mm -hmm. it's like the most Beatles and it's it like shows what they did best and, and their interesting pitfalls. Uh, so it's it's my catch-all favorite, I would say. Um, OK. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes other books are like my most like passionately favorite because I go through so long uh, with rereads of it. Uh, sometimes it kind of sits on the back burner, but uh, my heart burns here too. <laughs> Very good. Did you get that reference? Did you get it? More of that, please. Oh yeah. <laughs> we'll have lots to talk about then, right? And and that's good. And and sure, right? There are criticisms, even if I have acknowledged them quite begrudgingly. And though we can talk about problems when they come up, please, listeners. Bear in mind, this is very much a fan's take on the novel. Um, hopefully, that doesn't mean you have to love the book as much as we do to enjoy the next, I don't know, hour or 12. Equally, if you haven't read it, I do hope you can still extract some pleasure and entertainment from this, though we are going full bore spoilery. So that's, that's your call to make. Now, we may have some listeners who haven't read the book or who have only seen the movie or who have forgotten a lot about the story. So to make this as inclusive as possible, we should probably begin with a brief intro to the novel. And I've already talked for a long time here. So can I ask one of you two to take the reins? How about you, Nat? Can you condense a thousand or so pages into a brief summary for me? I'll endeavor. I'll endeavor. Um, all right. So the challenge is uh, there's like the superficial uh, synopsis of it. And then there's like the slightly more thematic uh, synopsis of it. The superficial synopsis or, or elevator pitch or whatever you want to call it is it's a, a group of friends in the late 50s as 10 and 11 year olds fight a child eating monster that lives in the sewers of their small main town uh, and uh, has been picking off their friends and or siblings uh, and they decide to finally stand up for themselves. They're they're the the so-called losers club because they're all kind of isolated from the community and they find each other and they find this uh, beautiful friendship unit and they fight the monster. They think they kill it, uh, but uh, just in case they all make a promise to return if it ever comes back. And shockingly, it does come back uh, 27 years later and they decide to come back as adults and finish the job. The slightly more thematic synopsis of the book uh, is it's about the kind of foreign country that is childhood. And uh, I guess the thematic synopsis is, is more from the adult's POV and the the, uh, the plot synopsis is more from the children's POV. Because from the adult character's POV, it's about completely forgetting your childhood and having to go back to where you came from 
and kind of recover those memories and see if you're the same person and have the same strengths that you had when you were, you know, mostly cartilage uh, now that you have bones that can break. And uh, you see if you can fight the same monsters that you uh, that you were able to do when you were you, when you were younger. Uh, so it's this really beautiful elegiac sort of uh, look at the town that made you and the childhood that made you, and that's why it has to be eleven hundred pages because it's this incredibly deep dive into this town's history and into your history and your friends' history, uh, and it sees who you are on the other side of lowercase and capital. Uh, case hit beautifully how'd i do that's i mean i don't (laughs) i don't think richie tozier himself could have done better that was that was impressive should i should i throw some racist voices into it if you want me to be more (laughs) because there's a lot of that too yeah yeah (laughs) i told you there'll be some criticisms all right so I think the best place to start is with our first impressions, right? Our first memories of the book, because it looms very large in my childhood, adolescence, every kind of era of my life, this book has had a a role to play. When did you first encounter it? So my very first encounter with it was the miniseries, um, which came out in 1990. And that was... so. I was very prone to nightmares as a child. So all of the horror reading that I did was done in secret um, where I snuck books off my sister's shelf and would just leave a little marker in there as it moved along. And I didn't get to it because it was just too big. It was too intimidating. And then the miniseries came out and Pennywise wrecked me. And then I didn't wind up reading it until I was like probably 16 or 17. And then much like in it, it just disappeared from my life until I didn't read it again until 2019. And then this time, which is just weird because I feel like I'm so familiar with the story and I've like somehow internalized it. But when I really sit down and look how many times I've read this book, it's not that often. Should I, should I leave the podcast now? <laughs> Get going. Don't you dare. No, I gotta go. I'll see myself out. It's funny you say the miniseries though, because I think weirdly, I think I saw that before I read the book. I read the book when I was 11 or 12. I don't know which. I know I saw the TV show first and it freaked me out and it kind of intrigued me. And then it was the first mm-hmm. it was the first book I read by King, which seems mad because I was precocious, but I wasn't 1,100 pages precocious, you know? And I have this really vivid memory. I'm, I'm in a sleeping bag in my bedroom. So someone must have been staying over. I don't know. And I was reading the, the, the opening beats of it and the Adrian Mellon chapter that's right at the start when you, you get the, the the hate crime where the the gay Adrian Mellon is murdered by thugs. And I remember reading that and thinking, I thought this was a book about kids having an adventure and fighting <laughs> monsters. And it, it's just, this, it, it just isn't a book that seems to be for me. But then as it goes on, it, it very much was. But what about you, Nat? Where did you first read it? Um, yeah, it's so fascinating that Adrian Mellon section is like, it suddenly becomes like a police procedural for mm-hmm. like 50 pages. It goes on for so long with like the, the detectives and everything. My history with it is, is pretty similar to your guys's actually. I would have been eight or nine when the TV series, uh, the TV movie, whatever you want to call it, uh, aired in 90. And I was already a Stephen King fan by that point. And I was raised by a single mom who was a Stephen King obsessive. Uh, so King was just all over the place in our house. And 
I hadn't read it when the series aired. I was still, I think, just a little too young for it. I'd read like, I say I was a little too young for it. I had already read like Pet Cemetery and, uh, you know, The Shining and stuff like that. But I think because of its size, I just, I was too daunted by it. But I have incredibly clear memories of walking in on my mom, watching it as it was airing live during the uh, Chinese restaurant scene, during the fortune cookie scene, and just being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is the most insane thing I've ever seen on this little screen. And then shortly thereafter, my older brother got the book out from the library. And I'll also never forget, it was the it was the mass market uh, paperback edition with Tim Curry on the cover, but it was Buckram bound. So it was like a hardcover mass market uh, paperback. And as I was wont to do as the youngest child, I, you know, snuck into his room when he wasn't there and snooped around, saw that book on his bed and started reading it. Uh, and similarly, Neil, like I got like to that opening Adrian Mellon section. I was like, I don't remember this from from what I saw on the uh, on the TV movie. And like, this is just this is heavy. And there's so much book like it, the, the pages were like thin, like a Bible. Uh, so I was like, I don't know if I have it in me to read this yet. But I was also in a uh, appropriately like very tight knit friendship group at the time. Uh, and we all read uh, the same books and we were all obsessed with horror. We were all obsessed with Stephen King. Uh, and so we basically like read books together and like maybe a year or so after that, uh, we all decided to tackle it. And yeah, it was it was like a rite of passage for all mm. of us. We were always like discussing it and, and uh, you know. It took us a while to read it, so we, we definitely had plenty of moments where we were like, what the fuck is going on? What are we going to encounter? What does this mean? So I that was that was my first go around. And then I, I think I read it like three or four more times after that, still as like a, a preteen or teenager. Uh, and then I read it again in my 20s and I read it again in my early 30s. And this was the first time I've read it as like someone who's firmly entrenched in the beginnings of middle age, which feels very appropriate. <laughs> yes, it does. It is. A, well, we'll get to the different responses when you read it as an adult um but but yeah it is a very it's a book that grows with you isn't it it really is i just find it astonishing how well king captures the essence of childhood in a way that, that very very few books can you know like very few books nail what it is not only not only nail what it is to be a kid but then write a book about losing what it is to be a kid it, it's 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 an incredible feat it really is. And it's it's fascinating, too, that uh, when you read like interviews with King about writing it, he was so scared to do it. Like when you think when you think of kids with bikes subgenre and you think of uh, King's forays into that subgenre, like you'd imagine he's so confident about writing about childhood, like he, the guy that wrote The Body and, uh, uh, you know, Carrie and Christine, just all these like childhood stories. And when he uh, purportedly, when he got the idea to write it and tried to tackle it, like he was terrified that he couldn't remember what it was like to be a kid, mm. uh, at least of like that age. And and apparently like had to go into like hypnotic states as he was writing it to try and uh, recapture that feeling. It's almost you almost get the sense sometimes that like the the sheer deluge of detail, especially in the 1950s sections, is almost like overcompensation for that fear or like a be careful what you wish for of that fear because he evokes childhood so clearly. Yeah, because I, I always think that it's not so much fiction as translation. You know, it's like hmm. I always thought he was just writing about his own childhood and that was why it was so authentic. You know, you compare it to something like Fairy Tale, which is a book I love, 
but no 17-year-old boy these days is anything like <laughs> the protagonist in fairy tale. You know, <laughs> you think it was almost like this act of translation. He was just pouring his, his reminiscences onto the page. And then I found out what you just said, that he couldn't remember his childhood. There's the whole story about how he supposedly has forgotten seeing his friend run over by a train. Mm-hmm. That he he's forgotten that happened. Whether it was a traumatic thing that he blocked memories, I don't know. But there is a meta element insofar as this book is about adults going in search of their children. And as you say, that deluge of memory comes over them. And you wonder how much he was, rather than translating his own childhood, sort of translating the act of remembering his own childhood. Mm. I think it's really interesting, too, because I didn't I didn't know that, that he struggled with the child sections. I didn't realize that. And for me... Every time I've been with this story, the sections with the kids are the seamless, deepest, like just some of his, you just, it runs away with you. And it feels to me like he's just transcribing from, from like his literal life. And this idea that he didn't really remember his childhood and that that's where all the work went into it. It's just, that's just fascinating. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting too, that like I, uh, you know, I'm, I might be skipping around topics a little bit, but uh, this seems like a, a good place to to mention this, that like th- it's this most recent reread that this felt in a way that has never felt before, that this was a book that could only have been written by someone in their late 30s. Um, I think he was I think it was published when he was 39. Uh, and I, I I'm currently 41, so I'm about the same age. Uh, and I know it took like four or five years to write uh, for him. But like that age. Uh, this age at which I am currently speaking as well, like there's just something about it where you almost feel like this is your last chance to recapture those memories because they're already basically gone. It's like when you're the, the, the best way that I can think of describing it is like when you're when you're a young adult, your childhood feels like this like distant island that you can kind of remember embarking from. But like those memories are already kind of hazy. Uh, but then when you reach the beginning of middle age, when you're like 40, it's your young adulthood that starts to feel like this distant island. And childhood feels like this fucking foreign planet that you can barely remember ever being a part of. And yet you also can't let go of the the knowledge that you lived every minute of every day as a child, as a child. So like there's this whole chunk of your life now that's like, holy shit, I can barely remember that. And yet, like, I know I went through every second of that, uh, just like I'm going through every second right now as, a, as an adult. You know, I think that's where, like, the middle age crisis and stuff like that comes from, that, that great cliche. Because you do start to, like, suddenly feel the slippage of time. And you're like, oh, my God, like, I better recover those memories. I better recover that feeling because soon it's going to be gone forever. And that's what this story evokes. That's what every adaptation of this book kind of misses because that's like what is thrumming through these pages is that fear of losing it all of like really becoming this new entity this this adult without a childhood well you know there's um there's a neurological aspect that happens so when you're young because you haven't had these experiences everything gets retained which is why time seems so much longer when you're younger, like remember how long summer would last when you were in between school and now as an adult two months go by and nothing because when you're older, you're not you're not keeping as many memories. And I think that that also contributes to that feeling you were talking about, Matt, where like it becomes this distant island that is so far away from you, even though it was you that entire time. And yeah, I do think he captures that perfectly. 
Do you recognise this childhood, though? Because I do. Despite this book being set 25 years before I was born in another country, <laughs> I remember having rock fights, genuinely. I remember, uh, like, you know, the local house, like the, the house on Nebolt Street, which is such a key location in, in the book. Um, we had a house that we sort of didn't go near. Actually, it wasn't a house. It was an, an, an old abandoned abattoir, but it was a place that you didn't go. I just, I really recognise the child. I, I, re I recognise the sense that in on you can be having the worst day of your life and then your friend will say something that is so to the heart funny that you lose your mind laughing, even though you were terrified 30 seconds ago. I remember all of that. And it, I wonder whether that's a universal thing or I, I sometimes wonder whether would a 10-year-old now recognise my childhood or have things changed much faster, you know, since we were young than since King was young to our, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I don't think it would be recognizable in the same way. I think that technology has created that kind of divide. But, you know, my childhood and King's childhood were not that much different, regardless of the, the, the how much time had gone by. You know, I was still growing up in a small town. I was still riding my bikes with my friends. You know, it was it, we were exploring the woods. There were there was a new development being built, and we used to sneak into the half built building uh, houses there. Like all of that, getting up to no good was just common. You know, you didn't have a phone. The only way you met your friends is because you agreed upon it. You were going to meet at this time at this place, and if someone didn't show up, well, you just hoped for the best and you went on with your day. You know, and I don't think that is childhood now and and I'm probably I'm a very old lady so you know I'm going to be all like the kids today but like childhood now doesn't feel I, I look at the kids in my life right now and I'm not a parent but I have children in my life I have nieces and nephews and it's extremely structured in a way that breaks my mm. heart like I just want them to I just want to get on your bike don't come back for 3 hours you know my mom used to open the door in the summertime on a Saturday shut off the TV and be like mm. get out and then when we had to come back home, we, we knew the rule was because we were, lived in near woods. You couldn't go far enough that you wouldn't be able to hear her yell your name out the back door. Like that. as long as you were within earshot, you, we could be doing whatever we wanted. And we mostly were. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, and I, I apologize. I feel like I'm going to preface every answer of mine with interesting. Uh, but that, <laughs> like, I've, I am curious about what it would be like for someone that grew up, like, relatively recently, uh, if, if, if they have the same kind of experience. Because, yeah, we, we really were, like, you know, the last generation that, like, knew what it was like to not have phones and to not have technology in our face mm -hmm. all the fucking time. Feral. But I do hope... And maybe posit that kids, the kids today might recognize <laughs> the the neat hat trick that that King pulls with this uh, in in the way that he does kind of make it feel sort of universal because the kids are fucking gross and uh, they're mean mm -hmm. and they're stupid and they're giggly and they're they're vulgar uh, and they're occasionally violent and, and occasionally illogical. And their parents are always distant and their parents are sometimes even antagonistic and the adult world is very confusing. I feel like that is always going to ring true with kids because there's always going to be that hunger to see uh, childhood depicted honestly. And that feels like a very honest depiction of childhood. Well, yeah. sure, because there's no agency. Exactly. 
You know, kids have absolutely no agency. They, they, they have someone telling them what to do all of the time. They don't get to make any of their choices. There's always, a, they're under constant threat. If it's not from a kid in the neighborhood, it's from like a bad parent and the adults around them ignore it. I mean, I think that is unfortunately probably pretty consistent for childhood, regardless of, of the yeah. error that, you know, you're growing up in. So I think that emotionally this would, this would still resonate, but I think that the logistics of like... Right. <laughs> putting the card in your tire and riding your bike out to the creepy house. I don't know. I don't know how that would yeah, resonate. I so. wonder. I wonder. There's a, And it's not just the agency th- thing, too. It's that I think the older we get, the more we start, you know, really looking at childhood as, you know, quote unquote, innocent. And I think any kid that is alive in any moment is like, I'm not fucking innocent. Yeah, it's feral. Yeah, you're feral. <laughs> You've got dark thoughts and you're doing stupid things and you're doing gross things and you're doing probably really awful things. Uh, and it's not that you're innocent. It's that, yeah, you're vulnerable. You're extra emotional. You're dealing with things for the first time and you just don't know shit. Like, it's not that you're innocent. It's that you just haven't, you haven't gathered all the facts that adults have. So like, there's just so much you're still mm-hmm. trying to learn. Uh, and, and that book really portrays that in a, in a beautiful way. Like these kids are not innocent. There's an innocence to their like naivete, uh, but they're not innocent. Mm-hmm. I just love the way that it, it, you said around the start that, you know, child is, is a different country and yes, that works in terms of memory, our own childhood being a, an alien landscape. But what I love, another theme, is how even in the moment, childhood is a, is a strange place because the adults mm. have no idea what's going on. And the idea is that only children could ever beat Pennywise because only they would be sort of elastic enough to even accommodate him within their worldview, you know? And yeah. that's the that's the kind of thematic extreme of it, that imagination is a weapon and can be wielded as such and only children have enough of it. But I also think there's a flip side to that, which is the vulnerability, which is children are living in a world kind of below adult radar and all manner of nasty shit goes on in that world. And mm-hmm. and the scene that freaks me out as an older reader is the scene when the adult comes out to intervene in the the, the bully's beating of Eddie Kasprak. And then they he goes, the adult was back in his house. And kind of leaves it alone yeah. because he doesn't want to. And the, it's this idea that the bully has sort of transgressed into this adult world where he is now a threat to the adult as well. And how terrifying that is for the yes. for Eddie because, you know, the grown-ups aren't coming to his rescue. Yes, and King does that with Bev right. too. Um, when Henry Bowers pulls the knife on her and the woman stops the car and Bev is screaming, he's got a knife. Yes, and Henry threatens the woman and she drives away. <laughs> he kicks her tail out. It's just that bone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it kicks her tail light out. It's that bone chilling moment where you realize that like Henry has crossed over from being a childhood bully to being just the mm. bully to anyone and everyone. And no one can stop him now. Yeah. It's just it it, it especially rereading it now, it just it, it gave me like an instant stomach ache. And I was like, oh, Bev, you're doomed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, I almost said that's interesting again. Oh, shit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this <laughs> up. Uh, but uh, yeah, funnily enough, my, my favorite scene on reread this past time, too, was a, it was around that time 
uh, it, it's a little closer to like the the full climax of the book when you know they eventually get chased into the sewers. And slight tangent, mm-hmm. that was an element that I had kind of forgotten over the years. Like they first are as kids proactive against it. Yeah. Uh, on the Nebold Street mission, but the final yeah. uh, uh, sewer fight. They get forced into it. That's not their idea. Henry yes. chases them down. And that was such a great encapsulation of, you know, the kind of lack of agency that children have in like the biggest events of their lives is sometimes you just get forced into the final fight. Uh, all the movies kind of conflate those two things and make it like that's their daring do to go into the sewers for one final mission. But no, they just kind of wind up there. And the moment that the moment right before that, that like really just like gave me the best kind of readery chills this time was when they all realize that it's like everyone in Derry is gone, even their parents. Like it was like Derry was finally setting them up to be sacrificed. And they realize that no one is around to help them out. Uh, and that like, it's like the whole town turns its back on them, including their parents, including the grownups, even the, even the grownups that uh, are ostensibly their caretakers and not like the abusive parents. Like they all just kind of let these kids go off on their own to meet their final fate. Uh, and it was such a, I, just the way that he depict that feeling of, you know, stepping outside and realizing like, where the fuck did everybody go? Yeah, I remember Stanley is like, oh, I guess my mom went shopping with her friend, <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, Stanley, you're all alone, little man. Yeah, oh, Stanley. What's the scariest scene for you? Because we, we've talked a lot broadly now about, you know, themes and our childers, but let's get into some of the nitty gritty. What's the scariest scene in, in the book that comes to mind? I think Mike's encounter with the bird Absolutely. And it sounds it sounds stupid saying it out loud. Like it was a giant bird and it was real scary. But literally, there's a giant bird and it's real <laughs> scary. Um, I think that that absolutely like the first time I was reading it and it seems to go on for so long. And he has that moment where Mike's stuck in the tunnel and the birds in the tunnel and the birds going to get stuck and they're going to be in the dark dying together. And I the claustrophobia of that. I honestly I put the book down. Huh. I had to like look away from that individual moment. That one always wrecked me. And obviously every depiction of Bev getting her ass handed to her by the men in her life is never a fun time. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot to say about Bev later, but it, 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 I don't want to get sidetracked. Yeah. So we'll, yeah. Yeah. We'll save that yeah, for later. Um, we'll save that for the bird, later. Yeah. B- before, before we get into your scariest scene, that was it you and I that were talking or was it, me and Daniel Barnett talking about how weird it is that that it's Mike and the bird rather than Stan and the bird. Yeah, that that bugs yeah. me for some reason, and so I'm I'm really glad to hear that that scene resonates with you, Ali, because for some reason it's always left me kind of cold because I, you know, it just felt like it made more sense to have Stan encounter the bird. Oh, uh, it absolutely makes no yeah. sense that it's that it's Mike, but it's just the the literal description. Of the and when the feeling like it's gonna pick yeah. him up, and I'm not like afraid of birds, but there was just something about like it was felt so unexpected and so bizarre. And I'd also feel like in that moment, I realized I couldn't trust anything. Like King was gonna throw anything out at me, which is why when Paul Bunyan came around, <laughs> I was like, of course, of course. I do love the uh, ultimate explanation for the bird too. Like that, 
because I think I bitched about it online oh, yeah. this time, that resonated for me more uh, this time around as well, that, that Mike was attacked by a bird in the crib. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, okay. Yeah, it's like subconscious yeah, fear. That was nice. That was a nice touch, Steve. <laughs> for those who haven't, who may not be fully au fait or haven't read the book in 30 years, Pennywise the Clown, it takes the shape of your your deepest, darkest fear. So, yeah, that's we haven't mentioned that yet. That's why the oh, bird. Yeah. What's your scariest scene, Nat? Hmm. I, I mean, I love Mrs. Kirsch. Uh, mm-hmm. That scene like just always works. I think mm. every time it's just so even, even down to like the little, like it says Marsh on the bell and then no, it says Kirsch on the bell. And that I think kind of encapsulates uh, what Pennywise does so well, you know, in that, like, even though Bev is an adult in that scene, she goes back, she's alone She's in this very uh, emotionally vulnerable place going back to the, the house in which she grew up uh, and that it takes this really personal and really disturbing uh, turn and she's trapped in the house with it. Um, like it, it just works the way he doles out the information and, and, you know, just the dramaturgy of the scene. It's just so fucking good. But also not not as scary, but I think just as like emotionally devastating the the Kokoran uh, Kokoran chapter I think just always mm. kills me because that also is just such a great encapsulation of you know the 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 symbiotic relationship between corruption of Derry as a town and the killer clown and that like one kid is killed by his parent and or stepdad and the other one is killed by it but ultimately both kids are just dead and they're just two dead kids two more dead kids in Derry it's just so fucking hard heartbreaking is that the death where he's trying to find the zipper because he wants to believe that it's a suit yeah that it's just got to be a costume is that that's eddie right that's eddie cochran that's the older brother yeah danny cochran is the little brother who gets taken by something that comes out of the toilet oh my god yes that was heartbreaking him struggling to find like just his little brain trying to make this be reasonable and like there has to be some element of reality yeah. here even though it's not in like the final throes of his death dear god that was yeah cool. and you juxtapose that with his brother dying uh who like is telling yeah. his stepdad that he loves him and like he doesn't want him to be mad at him as he's like getting beaten to death Ugh. and it's like those two images kind of define what this book is of the real life horror and the, the like just garish monstrous horror and how they feed off of each other. Yeah. Yes. Right. You, you've touched something that I think works to massive effect in this book, that scene where he's telling his daddy loves him. There's a cruelty to this book in the way Mm. that King plays on your emotions in exactly that way by making victims such pitiable victims. Mm. But true to form for me, Fuck the kids, right? He does it to dogs, <laughs> and it really upsets me. <laughs> oh, I thought about you, Neil, when I got to Mr. Chips. I was like, oh, this poor man, he is not going to make it through. Well, I'd forgotten Mr. Chips. Oh, we all forgot Mr. Chips for safety. You know what? I I can't keep explaining every reference to the listener. Listener, I wholeheartedly apologize. <laughs> we need to just have the conversation. <laughs> So if you're a fan of it, enjoy. If not, go read the book. You'll absolutely love it and come back and listen to this conversation. That's my advice. But this will be like 17 hours long if we explain every reference. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Chips is Mike Hanlon's dog who Henry Bowers poisons. And the way it's described, 
Mm-hmm. Oh my oh. god, he's just it's like I remember you said something that ruined my life in that when we last spoke about how Cujo just wanted to be a good boy, right? And it's yeah. it's that all <laughs> over again. It's Mr. Chips is like licking at Henry's hand even as he's dying, even as he's he's licking the hand of his poisoner. And then he does the same thing again with Patrick Hoxetter, who is trapping fridge. puppies in fridges, mm. and when it escapes, it's licking his hand. And I remembered that chapter, and I kind of said, kept saying to my wife, because she knows that I have real trouble, um, I kept saying, I don't want to read this chapter when I get to it. I don't want to read it. It's going Aww. to hurt my, my soul the way I can't deal with. You know, I, at that point, there's been like 30 dead kids, but fuck it. Um, I'm like, <laughs> I can't read it. And then it just sprung Mr. Chips on me. And <laughs> honestly, just winded. Like, it, it, I mean, it ruined me. To give an idea of what a, a, a weakness I have for animal cruelty, I saw the most disturbing film of my entire life in the last week. The most disturbing film I've ever seen. Do you want to guess what it is? The Disney movie The Bear from like the 1992, <laughs> 1990s where a little bear dies? Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I was oh. thinking to you about that. We wa- me and my wife watched it. We came home. We were both just burst the tears two hours later. And three oh. days later, we were walking around the house, both going, I, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, I, it, that, that film is an abomination. I'm not going to go on about yeah. it. But, you know, like a few weeks <laughs> earlier, I'd watched Speak No Evil and watched like a kid's get a tongue cut out. Absolutely fine. But a, a sad CGI raccoon ruined me <laughs> so when it got to mr chips and and patrick hoxetter i was i was destroyed but for me the scariest yeah. they are by far the most disturbing the scariest scenes when i was a kid it was the voices from bev's drain which mm. just oh, I, yeah. I remember really vividly for for like quite a long time putting the plug in the drain every time i went in the bathroom when i was a kid yeah. because of that scene um, but more recently on this latest reread, it's Mrs. Kirsch. And I think it's the weirdness of that scene because there's yeah. a lot of stuff in, in it that goes unanswered or unexplained or slightly unresolved. A lot of weird details that are never quite traced through. But I don't quite get, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't quite get who Miss, Mrs. Kirsch is or what she's supposed to represent. She's just this weird old lady who claims to be Pennywise's daughter. It's a strange thing and it's so unnerving. I always just took her as like another iteration of it. Like, I feel like Pennywise is its favorite. I feel like Mrs. Kirsch is just another costume that it wears. There are a couple of slight uh, justifications for it. Like, she, it, it's the witch. It's the Wicked Witch. So it's another childhood archetype. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is, uh, I forget if it's like in the Tracker Brothers or if it's in the sewers or something like that. But there's a nudie mag of a, uh, of a mm-hmm. woman. And that's where the younger Mrs. Kirsch, Beverly, recognizes. Uh, she just has like a moment of like, oh, my God, that's the woman from the apartment or something like that. Um, so, like, there are little clues in the... 1200 pages of text <laughs> as to like where she comes from but yeah it's such a it's just an uncanny scene it's mm. so fucking weird yeah i mean who doesn't want to get served a cup of raw sewage why not <laughs> and it's so gross like that line what is it like like he's my pennywise is my fat because she says fadder she has this german accent he's my fadder he shat me out of his arsehole or something it's just so gross <laughs> like a lover lover god bless her I, I almost uh, uh, I almost segued again with, isn't it interesting? But isn't it interesting 
that uh, those two scenes that you reference, Neil, the uh, uh, the the adaptations never. Uh, well, I almost said they never get right, but in in a way, they get the. I kind of like the adaptations take on the uh, Beverly uh, voices from the sink a little bit better, like rereading it. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, the blood from the sink is actually like much less of an event than it is in the movies. And then like uh, juxtaposing that with like Henry Bowers is never as evil in the movies as he is in the book. Like the Mr. Chip scene is just like, this is one of the most evil children King has ever depicted. Like he is just such a fucking monster. And again, just increases in his monsterness as he loses his mind. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun little trade-off. Do you have any empathy or sympathy at all for, for him, for Henry Bowers? I do, yeah. I mean, you know, a guarded kind of empathy. Like, he's still a piece of shit. I don't, I don't justify or, or, you know, relate to the things he does. But he's so terrorized himself. Mm. Uh, and, like, obviously being terrorized doesn't make everybody a monster. He's still a monster in there. But like, yeah, his dad is is horrible. And like, so he's he's a piece of shit who never had a chance to not be a piece of shit. It, one of the things I really appreciated on this uh, go round too is is the devolution of his friend group. That's another thing that just like for like ease of adaptation, like he's just always got Belch and, and Victor and like that's it. But like by the time you get to Patrick Hockstetter and you realize that like even... Henry's friends are starting to peel off yeah. from him because of the things he's doing uh, to the point where he's, he's kind of reduced to hanging out with Patrick and, you know, having, having uh, 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 intimate moments with Patrick and Patrick is like, is depicted as like the, the, the loner of the loners and just like that weird sociopathic kid who just collects dead animals and dead flies in a pencil box. And like, that's what Henry is reduced to hanging out for companionship at that point. Uh, there's a poignancy to that, even though he's utterly batshit. Yeah, he's he's kind of like Ace Merrill on really bad speed, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> he's, I think he's so much better than Ace Merrill, though. Like, I think he's such... Ace feel, has always felt a little cartoonish mm. to me, and maybe it's because Ace was older, and Henry is much closer in age to the mm. losers. But, like, I, I th and I think it's that, too. I think... I have so much, I have empathy for Henry. I think that there is a monstrosity inside of Henry that if he had a different parent could have been taken care of in a way, could have been excised in a way. But because he had the parent that he had, it was just fed and festered and it becomes a tool that it can manipulate. Now, what and the way I think he keeps, King compares him is that Hochstetter is so off the chain that it is like, no, 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 I'm just going to kill you. I can't even use you. Like, you are just too crazy for even me. Which brings Henry back to like, oh, this really is an extremely broken yeah. child. You know? And I think that that was a great, just a brilliant move. So he's not just a cartoon bully at any point. King also in his, like, you know, his, his deluge of descriptions... Uh, uh, <laughs> mentions at one point how because uh, when Beverly walks in on them uh, lighting their farts she sees them with their pants down and did just kind of an offhanded reference that like Henry doesn't even have pubic hair at yeah. this point so like it really does kind of hammer yes. home like yeah he's just a fucking kid he's and, just like a little baby but also weirdly one of the kids has a hairy yeah. ass so what's happening <laughs> what is happening it's also the fact that Henry has a nightlight that really Adam made mm -hmm. a, it's like one line and it made such a massive impact on me when I was reading his character. He has a nightlight. He's still scared of the mm. dark 
And there's a sadness to that. But these are all things, these are all things that when I read it when I was younger, I was like, nope, don't yeah, care. He's a monster. Yeah. Now as an adult, I'm like, oh God, Henry, yeah. everyone failed you. <laughs> well, rifling on, um, let's talk characters, right? Because th- let's face it, they are what this book lives and dies by. Quick rapid fire now. Everyone's got a favorite member of the Losers Club. Who's yours? And is it the same character that you most associate with? Because I think they're slightly different questions. Um, so as a kid, it was Bev. I think just by gender alone, I, I related to Bev. I don't think she was my favorite, but I related to her. I agree. I think for different questions. Latest reread, I am 100% here for Eddie. <laughs> Eddie is... Eddie broke my heart in the best possible ways. I was so proud of him when he stood up to his mother. I was like in near tears. I was like, you got this, baby. I absolutely am a just giant Eddie Stan. Nah. I've been dreading this question because uh, I, do, I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I can answer the first part. Like, when I was a kid, I was all about Richie because I was mm-hmm. a fucking, uh, you know, I was the clown. I was the class clown. I was the little theater kid. Like, I was just all about trying to make everybody laugh all the time. Uh, one of the things I particularly like about the 2017 movie is that uh, Richie's not good. He's not good at his voices. He's not. And King mentions this as well. Uh, but really seeing it on screen, like really kind of hammers at home that he's just so nervous. He's just so desperate to crack any tension with a joke. Uh, and I definitely could relate to that as a kid. Uh, he's just so fucking racist. It's like so hard to read now or to to mention that I, yeah. uh, I, I relate to that. Um, it was the 50s. It was a different time. Uh, no, he was racist even for the time. Uh, but um, I don't know. As far as like, favorite i love them all i was just i was watching the tv movie with my wife because my wife doesn't do horror uh but she loves john ritter and so i was able to convince her to watch the tv movie and uh she had no she like when the first kid dies in the first like two minutes she's like a kid dies in this and it was like oh my god you have no idea what this is about (laughs) at all it's like seeing lonesome dove and being like there's a horse in this uh like it's just like there's so many dead kids uh, but like, so she went into it completely blind and I, it, I was commenting to her afterwards how fascinating that was for me because like all of these characters are so like totemic to me, uh, uh, because like they were just so quintessential archetypes growing up, uh, because of the book, uh, that like, I don't know if I have a favorite. I do, I do love Eddie now more than I ever did. Um, but I think every one of them has something about them that like, I would miss if I picked another one as my favorite. So I'm going to punt and say Mr. Chips is my favorite. <laughs> oh, oh, justice for nice. Mr. Chips. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's my ranking of the Losers Club. Right. This is, you can take umbrage or not with this as you want. In terms of like least favorite to most favorite. Hmm. Firm bottom. Richie. <laughs> he annoys the hell out of me. Yeah, oh, he irritates me. Um, weirdly, next, Bill. Not really a fan yeah. of Bill. Bill is just a little bit smug and sanctimonious. Um, He's kind of a psycho. Mm-hmm. Stan won me over massively this time round. I think I love his primness. Mm. Like I, 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 I love that sort of prim proper but he he pushes against it i look there's there's one great line where it says something like he doesn't he's not scared of being hurt but he's scared of mess or something like that you know 
it, yeah, it's like the, the, the it's the chaos yeah. of it that it it it, uh, it offends yes, him. Yes, it offends because him, it doesn't make line. sense. It's offensive. Yeah. He's not afraid. Yeah. He's offended. And I think Brilliant. we all either feel that or know someone like that. You know, Mike is just brilliant i just i just love mike and then the top three eddie because eddie overcomes his fear more than any other character and that's always yeah. an endearing yep. trait to me the person who is the most afraid standing up i think is just the most just the most laudable lovable trait bev every time i've read this book has crept further up my sort of leader board because i think when you first read it as a boy i don't let you know that you're kind of like mm, she's a girl and then you realize that's a ridiculous <laughs> way to think and actually she's the heart of the entire novel but number one is has always been and will always be ben yeah ben is my number two because he's so tender he i'm sorry he gets number two simply for that moment where he's whispering into the grass yeah. that he loves her <laughs> oh, it's so sweet oh my god it's, so it's the sweet. sweetest thing it's it's so oh I I read that bit to my wife when I was rereading it yeah like Ben is just Ben is me if I was nicer because when I was at school I was like <laughs> such a loser and not in a cool capital L way um I had friends but I like I couldn't talk to girls I couldn't look at girls my mother once described me as ugly to my auntie that's how ugly I was <laughs> <laughs> like and I was also like the you know ardent I loved literature and I, I was very kind of arty farty and everything was romanticized in my head um mm. and I, I but I wasn't as pure as Ben so I, I was sort of like somewhere between Ben and Bill I'd all I had all Bill's self-righteous superiority <laughs> and none of Ben's <laughs> niceness but yeah god Ben breaks my heart I I see even as you're like listing them out like I'm like yeah that's my favorite no that's my favorite <laughs> no that's my favorite like I agree. I think I think Bill is kind of uninteresting. You take the stutter away from Bill, and he'd just be a, he'd be a fucking he'd be the popular guy. Mm. Uh, he's and they're always just talking about like his broad shoulders and how like there's just something about him that you love, uh, uh, and like just want to trust and stuff like that. So there's something kind of inherently uninteresting about Bill. He goes bald. Like ooh wow, what a <laughs> what a character trait, um, which no one ever portrays. Uh, quite the opposite. They give him a ponytail. Um, but yeah, I always wanted to like Stan more. And I liked him more this time. Uh, I think because I also forgot that he's the one who initiates the uh, the, the blood oath and yeah. cutting his palm. And that was a nice little moment of like, yeah. okay, that's playing against type. Because there, I, I don't know, there, I, this, maybe this is the time for this conversation. Um, but like, all of these characters kind of walk the line and get real close to being almost caricature because yeah. they're all kind of defined by the thing that makes them an outsider kind of by virtue of the plot itself. Uh, and so like, you've got the one who stutters, the one who's fat, the one who has a vagina. Like there's just like all these, the girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a disability in and of itself. <laughs> there's a True. Mr. Show sketch that also makes a similar joke. It's like a bunch of like amputees and then, Sarah Silverman's like, and I'm a woman. Uh, and it's like, that's that's the thing she deals with. But like, they all kind of edge up to that border. And, uh, you know, King is a master at this stuff. And there's just so much material. So they wind up being very beautifully fleshed out. Uh, but, you know, it is this weird kind of double-edged sword of like, I, I'm Jewish. Uh, and I was very much like one of the few Jews I knew. 
Uh, and so I was like the Jew in the friend group. And so like to have a character in, in this iconic, even at the time when I read it, this iconic horror novel be the Jew. Uh, like there was something so powerful in that and amazing in that. And then also something kind of deflating that he lives up to those kind of stereotypes of being like super fastidious and super upset by disorder. You know, he winds up becoming an accountant. Uh, he's the one who kills himself. He's the one who uh, uh, can't orgasm in the, in the uh, scene that we'll talk about later. Like there's just something about him that is just not enough and is not like, is just kind of outside of the group, even this group of outsiders. And so there is something that I always just want to like him more. I want him to uh, be more, but at the same time, you know, maybe it's one of those things where like uh, the recognition is the impediment because, you know, like I think of their like a Monopoly game and Stan's like, well, Jews are good at making money and everybody laughs. And then uh, Bill says, or someone else says like, you know, Jews are good at making money and everyone is, is uh, his mom is horrified. Yeah. But I can remember making those jokes. I'll still make those jokes. It's just that I sometimes I wonder if the text itself agrees with that stereotype. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's kind of it's kind of like I don't, I don't want to speak for you, Ali, and I, I wonder your thoughts on this. But like so much of the one female character is so predicated on sex mm -hmm. and how she looks like King sexualizes her just even from like a narrative place. Yes. Uh, and sometimes he'll like buffet it by like, you could see the woman she would become. He, he fleshes her out more. Like there's more to Bev, I think, than there is to Stan. But there is a lot of, uh, like she is just kind of defined sometimes by just being the one with the vagina. And it's it's just kind of, it, eh, eh. It's eh. It's, it's as in reading it as an adult, it's extremely frustrating how sexualized Bev is. She's sexualized by the boys. She's sexualized by the narration. And reading it as a kid, that, that actually scared me. Hmm. You know, when you're in girlhood and you're, you, you, you're becoming a woman, you know, you're going through puberty, the world physically watches you do this. Like, it, it's a very hard thing to hide. And you see how the world talks about and treats women. And, like, I, I grew up in a small town. I was catcalled at 11. Like, it, you, you realize that this thing that you are barreling towards, that you cannot stop yourself from becoming – is dangerous and not in a good way, but that it puts your very body in danger. And so like, that is how I felt when I read it as a kid. Like I was scared for Bev. I, Bev made me scared. She made me angry sometimes too, because it felt too real. It felt too familiar. And I, I was disgusted by it in the way that I was afraid of what was happening to me. Reading it as an adult, it's exhausting. It's truly exhausting. And, and I just feel like all of the puberty fears belong only to Bev. Like the boys never have wet dreams. They never get boom surprise erections. They never have their bodies act out of control. It's just hers. I think that ultimately that is because at its heart, it is a book about boyhood and that's okay. And I think we try to inject feminism into places that maybe it just isn't. This isn't a book that is bad to women. It's not an anti-feminist book, but it's not necessarily a feminist book either. And it doesn't have to be. That's not even like a criticism, because if you look at it, if, if you look at the kids, they all they all have like a, a power. Right. OK, so um, and their power goes into adulthood. They keep it. 
So like Bill, uh, Bill becomes a storyteller because he is their leader and storyteller. And Eddie has an insurance company, um, excuse me, a limousine company because he's the navigator. And like Richie is the, the prankster. So he winds up as the DJ and Ben is the builder. You know, he makes the fort. So he becomes, you know, the architect family. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel, and then like Mike, okay. So Mike, Mike is the archivist and, and the group memory. So like, that is his role. What's Bev's skill? She's the marksman. She's the best shot in the group. That does not exist in her later life. Okay, fine. Set that aside. What's her other skill? Her sexuality, which she owns. We'll get to it. But it becomes, instead of it being a thing that she owns and belongs to her and harnesses, it becomes this beacon for abuse. It's because she's sexual that Tom is in her life. And, and, physically tearing her apart and it's just why doesn't bev's heroism why doesn't that carry through into her yeah. life? like how is she the only one who is so terrorized just like she was when she was a little girl none of the other losers have that and like i mean maybe you could say stanley does since because i hate that stanley commits suicide and i i hate that it, i feel like it's never fully explained like why like what happened to him that the rest, I, that the rest of them, I don't know, were able to come back and deal with it. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling yeah. now. But like bringing it back to Bev, it's I, she's she's a character that I love in a book that I love. That I watch a lot of people try to make more than what he wrote her as, and it makes me a little sad. I guess, like I said, it's a book about boyhood, and that's okay. That's such a uh, a great point. And, and sorry, Neil, I just want to follow a thought um, mm, before before I let you talk. Interestingly, uh, interestingly, um, yeah, because you you I, I I just have two uh, thoughts that I kind of want to trace uh, chase down real fast. Because first, like, hey, that's such a fucking great point that like we we do not deal with the biological realities of boy mm -hmm. puberty, and and like that's such a great point. Uh, and also counterposing. Bev's depiction is Mike, which obviously I can't speak to at all, and I, I, I won't try to speak to it all. But like every time I read it, like I'm always amazed at how long it takes before King even mentions that Mike is black. Yes, like that he's a person first, and then we bring up that he's black. Mm -hmm. Beverly is a girl first, and then like a person mm -hmm. later, and it's such an interesting. Uh, uh, kind of juxtaposition. And also, like, just to throw, uh, you know, this this one character who never gets mentioned ever in any analysis of it ever, and she's so, uh, I guess, problematic, is Beverly's friend, who is the capital F feminist in the book. Like, she is a de facto feminist. She self-identifies as a feminist. She seems to stand in for the feminist movement. Uh, I guess that would be, like, the second mm -hmm. wave movement in the 80s. Um, and like, all she does is think about sex. She defines herself by sex. How many, you know, how many men she slept with. Uh, and ultimately she is rendered this pathetic abused little, uh, puppet by Tom. Uh, and again, mm -hmm. it's one of those moments of like, is the book like, is that just a plot thing? Cause like, it makes sense as a plot thing is the, or is the narrative trying to say something here or, uh, the more judicious way of of maybe saying it is like, is the narrative not aware enough of what it is seemingly saying with this inclusion of this of this you know capital F feminist? 
uh, and like her thoughts on feminism. I, I found it really interesting this this time through that like we don't even meet Bev for the first time as Bev. We meet her through Tom. Mm. We meet Tom's yes. interpretation of Bev, which is of course very abusive and very sexualized. Also, the the first time we meet Bev as a kid, it's in Richie's story because right. they're going in the movies. You don't even meet Bev as a kid in her own story. Yeah. It's in Richie's story. And it it hit me so hard when I was reading this time. I was like, wait a minute. We didn't do Bev. Why is she already in here? Because everyone else gets their introduction. And Bev's just like slotted in because like maybe it's a date. Right. I don't know. But, you know, Ben has a crush on her. Like she's just a vehicle for the boys to deal with their confusing feelings. And she's like that for a lot of the book. If she doesn't end that way, I do think that her char- there, there is character growth. Um, I don't know, learning curve over a thousand pages. <laughs> Although even at the very, very end, uh, uh, you know, Ben gets a little side mission of, of kicking the eggs. And what's Beverly's uh, thing to do at the very end? Oh, yep. Old Audra. The P.A. Yeah. <laughs> holding the dead boy. And and the woman who looks like her. Yeah. And the woman who looks like taken. her. Yes taken at home so you've all mentioned far more smartly and acutely than me i think <laughs> i love the book too much because you've all mentioned things that i <laughs> have noticed um but you you've put them together you've synthesized them into like a theory <laughs> i was baffled by how long it took for us to be told that mike is black i just i was like have i missed this you know it's like yeah. hundreds of pages and multiple pov chapters the thing about boyhood and, and adolescence and puberty hadn't even clocked that, that, you know, we don't get anything about any of that stuff. And having been through it, it's noteworthy. <laughs> you know what? We, we Yeah, yeah, very sticky. Um, <laughs> as my mother once said, Neil's fallen out of, out of bed and broken his pyjamas. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's brilliant and awful. <laughs> So glad I didn't have a British mother. Right? <laughs> Sorry, I sort of shot myself by that. And you know what? Let's talk about this. I, I'm going to come back a little bit and then we'll call a, a draw this week because I feel like, you know, we've been talking for a while now and we've not even mentioned Pennywise. So I think mm. we'll make it a two-parter and we can really do it justice, you know. But yes, everything you said is true. And Mr. King, if you by any chance have become aware of this show through last week's episode with Mike Flanagan. If by any chance you're listening, know that we speak in love. But yeah, Mm -hmm. it's not a book that comes unburdened by problematic content. And the Bev stuff, the sexualization, is is really, by the end, quite tiresome. And I, I think sometimes that King is both a younger, less mature writer. Um, I think he's also, in some way, evoking the single-minded, kind of furtive horniness of young boys who yeah. are incapable of seeing a girl without a sexual lens, you know? Um, and that's not nothing to do with toxic masculinity. No. It's to do with hormones, you know, and, and the fact that boys are hyper-aware of the presence of a female body in their midst, you know? Straight, straight boys, you know, I don't want to overly generalize um i was just gonna say but i think that king sees that because what he does then is have that really great moment where she's not going to be allowed in the smokehouse and she's not having it 
You know, they tell us she can't do the, the rituals. She can't be in there. And she's like, I'm just about such a part of this. Why can't I be here? And she's like, is it because I'm a girl? And they're like, yeah. And she is not having it. So it's like, I feel like King is like, she does belong with them. And I know this and they know it, but they're very horny boys and they don't know what yeah, to do. They're horny boys. And the, the author is a horny boy. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. And this is my point, because I think what you said, Nat, is exactly what I think on this read through is that some, sorry, it might've been you, Ali. I don't know who said it, but there, there are parts and it's the same with the, the antisemitism. It's certainly the same with the racial slurs thrown at Mike because the, the racial slurs thrown at Mike are constant and they wear you down and mm. they are, they're always markers of villainy, mm-hmm. but they, the antisemitism and the over-sexualization at times do seem to seep into the narrative voice at a kind of omniscient level. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it, it is a struggle with this being my favorite book. It is difficult to, to reconcile it. But at the same time, I, I have such goodwill towards the book that I I do skate across that probably without and kind of tackling it in with the rigor I should, you know? I think that we all do. Look, it's not perfect. No one's asking it to be perfect. It's not, and that's fine. I mean, there are those moments, yes. Did I need the narrator talking about hard little apples so much? No, I sure did not. I sure didn't need that. But like, you know, those moments, could I, if I could excise a couple of those lines from the books, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But again, this is a book about boyhood. And, and I think that Bev is a great character, but she is also a vehicle. Hmm. Mike also gets put into that role. A great character, but also a vehicle. So everyone can see how racist everyone is. Yeah. And it's like, that's a very delicate juggle <laughs> to pull off. Well, you know what? <laughs> my way of forgiving the things we've talked about and reconciling it with my love of the book and love of King and all that is that I think this is a book about hate that is written with such love. And that's why I think Mm. most of it is forgivable because when he puts a foot wrong and he talks about the apples and on Bev's chest, or when he drops the N word for the, (laughs) the, the 14th time in a page that Mike's having a bad time, he's doing it to show how awful those things are because I think the worldview of the novel is that the world is a hard place and you've got to make your own little enclave of love within it. And then that's what the Losers Club is, you know, and and I think, unfortunately, over an 1,100-page book, on occasion, the reins are going to slip a little bit and it's I don't think it's necessarily possible Mm. to be, to walk the line that that requires without putting a foot wrong here and there. So, that that's my way of reconciling all of this stuff with the fact that it's my favorite book. But the one thing that does cause untold levels of controversy, quite rightly so. <laughs> um, let's talk about the scene. <laughs> the scene. And for those who don't know, but who have listened for the last hour and twenty minutes, the scene comes towards the end of the book when. The, the, the Losers Club in child form are stuck in the sewer in the complete dark. They've beaten Pennywise in that era, but they can't get out. And to get out, for reasons that make sense thematically, if not logistically, 
Bev has sex with each of them in the darkness. Um, and the scene is often referred to in pop culture or in commentary as kind of like an, an orgy scene. And I actually find that choice of language says quite a bit more about the speaker than about the scene itself. Mm -hmm. Because orgy is yes, such a loaded, incredibly eroticized term that, you know, it's it's redolent of, of perversion and it's sort of like, you know, aberrant sex and things that are outside the norm and, and are a little bit pervy. Let's, let's say what we mean, you know? So to then say, Oh, it's an orgy makes it so much dirtier and, 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 you know, well, yeah, so much dirtier than it actually is, but it's, it is a complex thing to talk about. And I do want to get to Pennywise and he's a pretty big deal, but <laughs> what do we make of the, the scene in the sewers? Start with you, Ali. What's your take on this? Okay, so I I agree with you. I think that the use of the word orgy says more about the person using it than it does about the scene. I think a lot of things have been taken out of contact. Um, the, th the thing is, the way it's written is that it's extremely tender. And I think that that really matters because what is happening is a declaration of love. If it's inappropriate for an 11-year-old to be doing that, sure, okay. Not going to argue that with you, but its purpose is to reunite them. And it is Beverly's choice. It is her idea. It is her choice. She has control the entire time. And it does twofold things. One, it works. Eddie's little GPS snaps back on. <laughs> and two, she gets to experience a physical sense of love that is divorced from the fear that her father has instilled in her. And I think for me, that is how I always think of it. And I don't, I mean, I know King says that he didn't think of it in terms of sexuality and that like, it, it, I think he describes it as like a bridge connecting adulthood and childhood and it bridges the books. And I, I get that structurally, I get it. But I think, truthfully, I, I, I think a lot, this scene has been twisted over time to be so much worse and more than it actually is on the page. And I feel like before anyone talks about it, you're all going to be forced to sit down and read it. <laughs> you have to read the whole thing too. <laughs> like you need it in context. Like everyone's going to sit down and read all of it. And now tell me what you think about the scene. It's not written as salacious. It's not gaudy. It's not, I'm like, I could do without the orgasms, <laughs> frankly, but like, it's fine. I guess. They're there. I don't know. I'm going to stop talking now. Someone else talk. You don't want to know that Ben is the biggest of them all? <laughs> you don't want those details? I mean, did I need to know that Ben is the biggest dick? I don't know. Okay, why not? I think there is one central question that this hinges on. And I have a listener who has written to me privately, so I'm not going to name them because I, I don't know, you know what this is a response to, but... The listener has mentioned how this is a scene that is full of trauma in her reading. And I totally get that. That's why I want to treat it really respectfully. Because you could say, yes, the language is beautiful. That doesn't make it okay to write about, you know, underage sex. Oh, no, no, no I didn't mean to imply that. <laughs> no, I'm, I don't think you are. I'm saying what I would say. But it, it's written beautifully in its intent, I think, is what is what matters. And I think the, the question it comes down to is whether 
it is a continuation of the abuse that Bev feels at her father's hands and which she goes on to feel at her husband's hands? Or is it an antidote and a purging to that abuse? And I personally think it's the latter. But there is one, there is one line that I find just incredibly chilling. And I don't know if I'm taking it the wrong way, but when she first starts to say what her plan is and all the boys are terrified, and that's cool because as a like 12 year old boy, you would be terrified. Um, she says, I know because my father told me. And I'm like, that mm. all the way through, Bevy is being told by her dad, don't hang around with boys. Boys only want one thing, et cetera, et cetera. And when she says, I know because my father told me, I thought you can read that as it's an implication that her father, that she knows her father has now taken on this sexual threat to her. Or in some awful way that she's bought into the idea that she only has purpose because the boys want her in that way, which is what her dad has told her. And I think that is troubling. I, I've i never read that line in that way. That is extremely troubling, but that's not how I ever read that line. I guess for me, sex is something that is a, a terror. Puberty, growing up, becoming a woman, all of these things are the things that Bev is most afraid of. Like when, when Pennywise comes to her, he comes as blood. Mm. He doesn't come as the teenage werewolf. Like her fears are her own body. They are growing up. They are one day not being able to answer that question, are you still my little girl? And what that means and how when she is no longer his little girl, what kind of danger is she in from him? So I've always felt like it's his emphasis on the idea that anything that happens between a boy and a girl is inherently bad. And I'm going to prove to you that it's bad because I'm going to make it sound scary. I feel like this is her unstitching of that belief because these are people she trusts and people she loves. And that might be an incredibly generous read. I don't know. I mean, obviously I, I'm not speaking to the person who contacted you. I mean, I can, I can very well see the trauma that would be, could be read through mm. all of this. I just, it's not the take that I guess I chose to have. And I don't know, I guess I have to sit with that a little bit. What about you now? Yeah, I, I have a, I have a similar read of that line as you, Allie. Um, although I can absolutely understand uh, your, your read of it as well, Neil. I mean, especially when you put it like, it's hard, it's hard to forget given how many fucking pages uh, uh, elapsed during this period. But like that day begins with mm -hmm. them playing in the Barrens. They go home for lunch. That's when her dad gets possessed by Pennywise and is literally trying to like check for her hymen. Yes. Uh, and, and rape her with his hands. Uh, and that's, I, I don't know if I should have prefaced that with a trigger warning, because uh, it's a very upsetting thing to say. But uh, uh, apologies in retrospect uh, uh, to just dump that out there. But like, that's that's what happens. And she has to run out of there uh, for her life. And that's when Henry attacks her. And that's when they uh, hide in the, the, the clubhouse. And that's when they all get kind of forced into the sewer. Like it's that just happened like that afternoon of the, the, the scene. So yeah, I've always kind of interpreted uh, my, my father taught me that this is what will not make me his little mm. girl anymore. Once I go through this, then I'm no longer a child. And it's the children who are trapped in the dark 
and who are trapped in the sewer for over an hour in the just completely lost. They've already beaten the monster. And now they're just like these tiny little vulnerable creatures who are going to starve to death down there. Like even it's also prefaced by, you know, they see the municipal worker skeleton, like even an adult can't navigate these sewers and they've lost their faith. They've spent their faith on Pennywise uh, and Eddie can't navigate anymore. They're just totally trapped and they're splintering apart. And this is Bev's understanding of how to, uh, you know, find their power again, find their, their, I think the line is she finds the link between the physical and the infinite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I agree that like, this is a scene a, I think has been kind of memed Mm. a bit, you know, it's the sort of thing that even people who don't know Stephen King, but want to like insult Stephen King will throw in your face of like, well, what about the child orgy at the end of it? Uh, or, you know, whenever he says something, uh, uh, left-leaning on Twitter, you'll just get a bunch of bots being like, yeah, you wrote about child orgies and it, like, and almost guaranteed none of them have read the book or know what they're talking about or are even real people, maybe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's I think it's an easy thing to uh, critique uh, because, as, as, as both of you are saying, like, the, the language that its detractors use is so loaded. But I agree that it, is handled with tenderness for whatever that counts for. You know, again, I can't speak to uh, that reader's very valid response to it uh, at all. Um, so I, I kind of approach it more from a thematic point. You know, as like a a fellow cis male writer, what would possess me to write a scene like that? Um, and I find there to be a beauty in that scene, hypothetically. I think there are things specifically, like some lines, as as both of you have alluded to, that really don't work, that work against it. But the idea of it, I find a lot of beauty in for a couple of reasons. I'll try and be as concise as possible, which is always a challenge for me. I think this is very much a book about love and not familial love, but found family love, which is a very specific thing. And prepubescent going into pubescent love, which is also a very specific thing. We've mentioned some of the lines that really don't work in this scene, and there, there are probably more that we could go into. But I think one one thing that I find works really well and like kind of shows the point of this scene is when Bev is also thinking about how this is it. This is what kids yeah. call it. Yeah. Did you do it? Did you, mm-hmm. have you done it? Like this is the other it in their lives. Uh, and that is becoming adults is this act. There are definitely moments throughout where they're thinking about sex and they're wondering about sex and they're scared about sex and they're, they're calling it it. Uh, and they, they're just like confused and worried and anxious about it. And even even not co-ed groups like you, you see uh, Henry and his gang, like they're all they got, they got their junk out and they're all just kind of waving them in the wind and lighting farts and stuff like that. Like it would kind of be an element that's missing if it wasn't in this narrative and that he uses it in this narrative to a powerful and to a um, kind of totemic result. I think there is a beauty to it. And there, you know, again, like the, the, uh, uh, the transgression and the, um, the kind of transcendence that Bev finds with it, that finds with like the birds and finds with the no longer being scared of this uh, and no longer enabling them to just look at her as a girl. But like now she is, they've all done this thing together. Mm -hmm. I think 
that really works on a thematic level, whether or not it's done well uh, and whether or not it is problematic in a lot of ways. I, it, it, at least to me, it makes a sense that I can't discount. Uh, and, then, you know, and, and just to be flip about it too, like the tension is relieved. There is that, for lack of a better term, there's that post-nut clarity that they all experience and you can like feel it in the book. Like Eddie's just kind of, the pressure's off and he's like, oh, we go this way. And it's almost like that pressure has been building throughout the summer, you know, because there's the pressure of the scene, but there is the pressure of their love for each other and this sense that they are, oh, we're in it now, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's begun, this constant sense of they're in a bubble. And when that pressure bursts, yeah, they can think clearly because it's like their ears are clear in an aeroplane. And what is puberty? Puberty is is your pipes. It is your pipe. Like that is what we call the the that region. It's your pipes. It's it's the inner workings of your body, and they're trapped in it. And the only way out is through. And and my final take on this before we finally move on to the big murderous clown is that um, you know <laughs> you said a while back now that it it allows her to stop being a kid, and the entire book is about the pass from innocence into experience. And yeah, all right, it's bad that that happens when they're like 11, 12. But it's also pretty bad that they're having to like fight homicidal bullies and like deal with a child killing entity at 11 and 12, you know? And I find it, this might be a thing that makes some people raise an eyebrow. Maybe it is. But I find it strange that in a book filled with the slaughter of children and the most Mm. aberrant acts, a scene of love however immature and inappropriate is like the focus of the controversy. Yep. Because if people are horrified that what Stephen King is doing to these kids, why are they not horrified that he's writing numerous chapters that don't need to be in the book for kind of narrative purposes of kids being murdered? You, no one, And I do think we always, again and again and again as a, as a culture, come back to a prurience about sex that we do not apply mm. to violence and to, and to hate of all kinds. And obviously, in real life, in real life, it's all terrible. Do you know what I mean? In, in real life, I don't want kids doing any of these things. Right. But in a fictional world, <laughs> why are we just going, oh, that yeah, that's a fun story. Yeah, the kid's been murdered. It's been thrown in the sewer and like the baby's dead. And But oh, Christ, the, the kids can't love each other. I find that odd in a fictional setting. I also yeah. feel like it... it... <laughs> It, it, it irritates me when people get all ridiculous about this scene. Not ridiculous, but like righteous about this scene. Because as a woman who consumes a lot of horror, I have seen incredible mm. violence done to bodies like mine. And that is not what this is. Mm. And I think that that matters. Like you said, it's, it's an act that is inherently of love, whether or not it's appropriate. It, it didn't happen in, you know... It happened in a story. And I just feel like so many other stories are are perfectly content to do incredible violence to young girls' bodies. And that is not what is happening here. And I think Mm -hmm. that matters. Yeah. It's one of those things, too, that, like, again, like, not to repeat myself, um, but, like, it happens. Like, not like the chain chain gang kind of uh, penetrative, penetrative sex element of it, but, like, kids muck around and oh, if, yeah. you, if you heard about 11 year olds doing that i don't think you'd be like that's horrifying or you'd be like i don't want to know like that's it, it's the fact that this was written by a man 
like written down into a book that mm-hmm. I think is the thing that people are like, and, and this didn't used to be a big deal too, which is another thing say it with me now that I find interesting uh, <laughs> is that like, like I've, I've been obsessed with this book for as long as I can remember. And it really is kind of only recently when people are outraged by this moment or like know about this moment, uh, this book that, you know, I probably fewer and fewer people no, again, no offense, Stephen King. Just, I'm just talking about how the zeitgeist moves on. Fewer and fewer people probably read uh, like the whole thing and are just familiar with the movies. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's just it's so kind of extra fraught and extra loaded. When I think if it was just an event that occurred, um, it probably wouldn't be. One thing I also find illuminating, I guess, uh, to just kind of echo what you're saying, Allie, uh, is I didn't I didn't know this until recently when I was doing some some research for this episode. Uh, is that Annette O'Toole was really upset that they cut it uh, for the 1990 miniseries. Uh, mm. And I, I, I was shocked because, again, in the context that we're in now, that people are like, I can't believe that scene exists. Like to uh, to just kind of be closer to when it was published and people were just experiencing it privately on the page. Annette O'Toole thought it was a really beautiful moment where like they did just kind of find each other again after this trauma that they went through, after this psychic like uh, macroverse trauma that they all went through. Um, which is another aspect of this we haven't even uh, uh, touched on that like the fighting of it is such a cosmic mm. thing that there is something interesting that they have to touch base again with with something yeah. corporeal and something grounded and something of their bodies to kind of live again. Uh, that's that's another interesting thing I hadn't even thought about until I'm speaking out loud. <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just trail <laughs> off. I'll just. Well, I, I've off. come around with that scene from being a sort of apologist for it. And sort of saying, yeah, of course you wouldn't include it these days and stuff. And having read it again, I I more and more think that it may be an absolute linchpin of the novel. And it may be inappropriate, but every single thing that happens to this to these children in this book is inappropriate. It's about kids who are being forced to live live a, a summer, a cruel summer for, for the Swifties out there. They're being forced to live this this summer that no kid should ever encounter these things. And and in the end, they escape by doing the thing that is perhaps the most prescribed against from, from an adult perspective on childhood, perhaps the most wrong thing they can do. And there's a, there's a thematic neatness in that for me that works. God, you know what that just made me think too? Just going back on your idea of how, how uh, weird our puritanical cultures are. Nobody remembers that Patrick Hockstetter gives Henry yep. Bowers a hand job yep. because he's punished afterwards. He's killed. So like it's like, okay, yeah, you earned that. But this saves them. This is like a, a moment of triumph for them. And we're very uncomfortable with that. It's one of the few moments where because they are children, they have agency. Mm-hmm. They make this yeah. choice together. It is it, it's consensual. Like I don't mean that in terms of, of, of the way we use consensual now. I just mean it in terms of this is them taking control over everything that has been uncontrollable. This is how they're going to get out because they're going to hang on to each other. Ultimately, that's the point of it. And I'm going to finish by quoting somebody who I think we can all sort of doff our cap to. Grady Hendrix, who, for those who haven't found it, <laughs> Grady Hendrix did a whole series on Tor.com of rereading Stephen King where he really, really insightful essays about each book. I'll, I'll link the it one in the show notes. Definitely worth checking out. 
And so he writes about this scene and he, he writes this. How often is losing your virginity portrayed for girls as something painful that they regret or that causes a boy to reject them in fiction? Mm-hmm. How much does the media represent a teenage girl's virginity as something to be protected, stolen, robbed, destroyed or careful about? In a way, it is a sex positive antidote, a way for King to tell kids that sex, even unplanned sex, even sex that's kind of weird, even sex where the girl loses their virginity in the sewer can be powerful and beautiful if the people having it truly respect and like each other. That's a braver message than some authors have been willing to deliver. And my final word on the matter is, obviously, we don't want kids to have sex in sewers at 11. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't think King so is of any way twisted for writing this scene. And the people who say he is, as you said, Ali, read the fucking chapter. Read it. <laughs> Come on. I would just like to also point out that, again, as the Jew, uh, the first thing that occurs to me when I think of that scene is it's just it's so unsanitary. <laughs> it's just like so gross. And, and oh, like so I know gross. she she feels like it's like a, a clean place to lie down. But no, it's just mm. oh, don't don't do it. Don't. Well, we've basically talked for an hour and a half an hour and something about <laughs> the very quotidian human aspects of this book um i've i don't know what i'm going to edit out i kept saying like we'll do a two-parter we won't do a two-parter i'll try and extract those comments to make this make sense but now officially we are doing a two-parter and we're going to come back uh, soon not not quite sure when it's a very fluid thing Chapter two. to talk about all the weird shit that goes on in this book from pennywise to the mac reverse to matcher in the turtle to well hints of beams and roses um and and it'll be a delight um but for now i think we'll leave it there with three grown adults defending an underage sex scene set in a sewer <laughs> oh god oh we're all gonna get cancelled <laughs> Yeah, no one will listen to part two. We're screwed. Podcast over. This is why King put it at the end of the book. Yeah. We've uh, wrestled the beast of a book into hiding for now. So let's come back next time to recommend the fight because how appropriate is that? Older, wiser, hopefully not forgetting what we had (laughs) planned to say. (laughs) Nat and Ali, thank you very much for talking scared so far. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. It was great. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of the conversation. I know we didn't get to Pennywise. Apologies, but don't worry. We will be covering him very soon. I'm hoping to release the second part of this on Friday so you can enjoy it over the weekend. Nat, Ali and I recorded it this morning. It went very well. We talked about all kinds of mad stuff from the Stephen King universe. But yeah, there's a lot of Pennywise. I am of course, interested in your thoughts on everything we covered this time around, including that scene, and I hope you feel that we treat it respectfully. I know, of course, that some people will disagree, and whilst I stand by what we all said, other points of view are completely valid. That's kind of the deal with books, right? Let us know, though, but be kind. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod, or you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. And you can find Nat at Nat Cassidy and Ali at Ali Malinenko. Easy peasy. 
I've included the Grady Hendrix essay that we mentioned in the show notes. It's very much worth a read. It agrees with a lot of what we said, but he wrote it rather than saying it on the fly, so it may be a little bit more articulate. Although I I think we did okay. Before I go, if you've enjoyed this, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Or, you know, retweet on social media, tag a friend who'd enjoy the show, If anyone is friends with Stephen King, please tell him to come talk to me. But only if you're his mate, you know, don't inundate the poor man with tweets from strangers, please. But basically, yeah, if you can support Talking Scared by getting the word out, then that's just an incredible help. And also, if you want more and you want to support the show in practical financial terms, remember, the Patreon is at patreon.com at TalkingScaredPod. Cheers, everybody. I'm off now because I've got the second part of this to edit and set live in a few days. All talk about the macroverse and turtles and deadlights. Get ready. But until then, think about the best summer of your life. Dig out your old photos. Call a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>